This is what's called a step wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hello, I'm Nina Kopel, and welcome to the special Olympic edition of Think Health. Coming up on the show... I always get goosebumps, like, talking about it. I've probably got goosebumps right now. It's just so exciting and it's so new to me that while it's a massive achievement and it's a massive thing, it's just the work is not even done. Like, the work is just starting right now. I catch up with Isabel Bishop, Australian water polo player and University of Technology Sydney student, about to head off to the Rio Olympics. But first... 800-metre runner Casta Semenya is a favourite predicted to win gold at the Rio Olympics. To put it in perspective, Sportsbet has her at 11 cents return for the dollar. The next lowest return in that category after her is a 7. In other words, they think Semenya will win. But the runner hasn't had an easy road to Rio. Go down to trackside after all that excitement as the women try and gather themselves with the crowd still going absolutely It's 2009 in Berlin and a group of female athletes are preparing themselves to run. Down to their marks. Kuro, Martinez, Krevshin, Semenya, Meadows, 7 over to Koskai and Kuzma. Initially all goes to plan. The women form a tight pack with South African Kasta Semenya in the lead but the others are right on her heels. So it's Semenya, South Africa, and on the inside... They hit the halfway mark and things get a bit crazy. On the inside. Semenya pushes on again and she's breaking away. There is no response now from Krevshen. Jepkoska is in third. Semenya looks over her shoulder and she's away. Semenya pulls further and further away from the group until eventually there's a huge expanse between her and the others. And she wins by a landslide. Of Great Britain who finished in third. 155-46. Well, that's smashing. Semenya has broken the world record and she goes for a lap around the field. A South African flag draped around her shoulders. Goes on a lap of honour. 155-45, smashing the national record, of course. An amazing performance. We'll be hearing a lot more of that, no doubt. We did hear more about it. A lot more. Athlete Caster Semenya celebrates after winning the women's 800 metres race at the World Athletics Championships in Berlin. But the South African teenager hasn't just hit the headlines because she clocked the year's fastest time, but because athletics officials are investigating whether she really is female. Semenya is an 18-year-old South African who won a world championship yesterday. But her celebration was short-lived after officials ordered her to undergo a series of tests. They are looking for proof that South Africa's golden girl is not a boy. People around the world are really angry about this win. They're saying Semenya got too good too quick. She couldn't possibly be a woman. She doesn't even look like a woman. In response, the International Association of Athletics Federation, the IAAF, suspended Semenya and requested she be gender tested. This is Daryl Adair, Associate Professor of Sports Management at the University of Technology, Sydney. Well, yeah, it's, she's, a, she's a woman. Uh, let's face it, uh, there's, there's no question about that. There's this story that Semenya told The New Yorker. 
where during competitions, the women that she was running against would approach her and accuse her of being a man, and she would take them to the bathroom to show them her genitalia. While Daryl is confident that Semenya was in fact born a girl and raised to be a woman, he, like much of the international community, suspects that her hormones may tell a different story to her body, and that's why the IAAF wanted her to do a gender test. And this is where the story gets a bit murky, because we don't have access to Semenya's medical records, they're confidential, and we don't have the outcome of her gender test, also confidential. But the IAAF statement to the media at that time was, it is clear that she is a woman, but maybe not 100%. Well, the interesting thing is they brought in sex testing in 1968 in the Mexico Olympic Games, and that coincided with the very first testing for drugs in sport. So my theory is that they were not only concerned about performance enhancement, they were also concerned that, you know, women from East Germany or the Soviet Union who were rumoured to be taking drugs uh, would become men. So this is about challenging the gender order. Eventually they brought in, uh, well, they used a chromosomal test, but that proved very faulty because there's a whole range of, of women who have different chromosomal makeups and you know the, the classic XX. So you know it's it became unworkable really. And in fact, by the 2000 Olympic Games, the IOC abandoned sex testing. It really only emerged again in the wake of Caster Semenya's performance as an 18-year-old in Berlin, where she broke her own record. She won convincingly over experienced athletes. And uh, her fellow competitors uh, argued that either she was doping or that she had uh, some kind of, uh, you know, intersex condition, which gave her uh, an unnatural advantage from their point of view. There's a condition called androgen insensitivity syndrome, which I'm going to call AIS. It occurs when the embryo is born XY, that's male, but it's resistant to male hormones so develops as female and has the physical traits of a woman. And this can cause hyperandrogenism, which basically means that someone who has the physical traits of a woman has higher testosterone levels. Semenya's critics said that if she did have AIS and higher levels of testosterone, she was unfairly advantaged. And we don't know her medical circumstances or biological circumstances, if you want to put it that way, because that's something between the IAAF and her. But the IAAF had what was called a hyperandrogenism rule. And in essence, what that did was establish arbitrarily an upper limit of natural testosterone for women. And it was theorised that women who had testosterone naturally above that level were somehow at a performance advantage than other women and therefore they either required surgery, which is very drastic just to play sport, or some kind of hormonal therapy. We don't know what happened with Semenya after the IAAF got her results, but when her suspension was lifted, she was running noticeably slower and some speculated it was due to hormone suppressant therapy, which would have lowered her testosterone levels. Now, an Indian sprinter called Duty Chand, <clears throat> she took her case because she was of the same status in terms of the hyperandrogenism policy as Caster Semenya. She took her case to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Now, she won the case. This only happened July last year, by the way. It means that the arbitrary level of testosterone required by the IAAF has been overruled. 
And if Semenya was on hormone suppressant therapy before, she won't be now or in Rio. And what the Court of Arbitration for Sport ruled was essentially that the IAAF uh, had not actually presented convincing evidence that naturally occurring testosterone provided a disproportionate advantage uh, to women athletes. The other thing to keep in mind about all this, and I'm not an endocrinologist, but um, I've done a piece with a scientist, and he conducted research which showed tremendous variability amongst elite female and male athletes in terms of their testosterone profiles, even an overlap between the uh, the men and the women. And he also pointed out that uh, women with what's called androgen insensitivity syndrome who uh, basically are born with uh, they have an x chromosome as well but they they're actually born women they just have a different chromosomal makeup but even though they have higher levels of testosterone than women with the usual chromosomal status that testosterone can't be used because they're in fact they can't process it so they've got this testosterone in their body that they actually can't apply. So the idea that you could have naturally occurring testosterone in a woman, that actually means that it's going to produce some sort of masculine characteristics is quite simplistic. Then how come people like Castor Semenya and Duty Chand, why have they fought so hard for the right to not have corrective hormones and not bring their testosterone levels down if it's not increasing their ability? Well, they they were put in a position by the International Athletic Federation, the IAAF, uh, until the Court of Arbitration for Sport overturned the rule of, in essence, being expected to somehow correct their bodies under the assumption that there was something wrong with them, that they were, I, I guess, the recipients of, a, of, of an unnatural and unfair advantage. There's a, a Finnish long-distance skier, now retired, who was basically unbeatable, and it wasn't discovered until years later that he had a condition, naturally, which allowed him to carry anywhere between 25 and 50% more oxygen in his blood than the average person. So it was equivalent to him taking a drug like EPO, which increases your oxygen carrying capacity. I don't think if he was performing now that they'd ask him to actually have his testosterone reduced. Uh, the focus seems almost inordinately about women. Uh, so Just in order to play sport, it seems to me a very drastic kind of requirement for women who are performing quite well. Judy Chand is the Indian champion, but she's just made the Olympics by about one hundredth of a second. She won't come anywhere near a medal. Her times are nothing like what the men run. Same same with Caster Semenya. Now, she has the best time in the world at the moment, 1.55, roughly, for the 800 metres, but that's 15 seconds outside what the men run. So the idea that Caster Semenya is somehow, you know, a man masquerading as a woman is ridiculous. Do you think that the current situation where the Olympic Committee is allowing them to run without regulating their testosterone, do you think that that will hold and, and continue into the future? Well, it's been ratified by the the highest law uh, court in the world, which is the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Now, they've given the IAAF and the IOC two years to actually come back with 
to them with evidence that the previous policy was logical and scientifically proven. Now, a year to this, almost a year to the day, they still haven't come back with anything. Okay, they've got another year, but one would think if they really had uh, something solid, something robust, they would have been back to the Court of Arbitration for Sport quite quickly. Look, they will come back with something, but uh, in the meantime, um, you know, you've got a whole range of scientists now who are coming out uh, defending the right of Judy Chan and Caster Semenya uh, to compete. In fact, there's a guest editorial in Scientific American. They've come out with a, a statement now before the Olympics saying that the kind of rumours and innu- innuendo about uh, Semenya and Chand are unwarranted scientifically. Associate Professor Daryl Adair from the University of Technology, Sydney. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. When it comes to health and the Rio Olympics, the first thing on everyone's minds is Zika. Experts have spent months deliberating whether or not the Olympics should be cancelled, and when it was clear that the Games would go ahead, they still advised mothers-to-be not to go. But for pregnant women in Brazil, keeping the unborn children safe is much more difficult. Some are attempting to end their pregnancies, but abortions aren't easy to access. For me, when the state is not respecting women's rights, I don't know. I don't see why women have to respect uh, the state and they can come together and find innovative, creative solutions. Innovative, creative solutions like Women on Web, which is an online platform offering support and information to women seeking abortions around the world. Leticia works at their help desk. Women on Web is a referral service where women can fulfill an online consultation and be referred to a doctor where they can get a prescription for abortion pills. Once they do, the abortion pills are sent to them. And if you need an abortion but can't afford to pay, they'll send them to you for free anywhere in the world. Well, almost anywhere. Brazil is the one exception because it's the only country that has been systematically stopping all, all the package center. It's a, a violation of uh, women's rights because the package comes with two pills, my Febristone and my Soprostol. These pills are in the list of essential medicines of the World Health Organization. Every person is entitled to have access to these pills on, on a personal level with a medical prescription. But uh, Brazil doesn't. And at, at the wake of the Zika crisis, the situation got even more desperate. We, we made a huge campaign for, for the women to Brazil to have access to this package, at least for the duration of the Zika crisis. But the government just continued its politics of uh, deliberately denying access to health to women. But that hasn't stopped women from seeking abortions. An article in the New England Journal of Medicine shows an increase in demand for abortions in several Zika-affected countries. Yes, and actually the study was carried out based on our data, on women's on, on web data, because as uh, abortion is, uh, is severely restricted in, in the countries affected by Zika, there's no official data, it's very hard to, to access that. So just researchers it is, uh, from Princeton and from Austin, they use our data to assess. What they found was that the number of requests they received for abortions from women in Brazil almost doubled from November last year when the Pan-American Health Organization issued its Zika alert and March this year. And this was completely what I was seeing on the ground, talking to these women. 
the demand really, really surged as the Zika came in. Women on web expected 580 requests for abortions in this time. They got 1,200. And the lack of information was also very, very key. The women didn't know whether Zika would necessarily lead to microcephaly or what would happen, what microcephaly meant for their pregnancies. And they were, they were trying to get to, to take their own decisions and they were not supported at all by the government. But even medical experts are still coming to terms with the relationship between microcephaly and Zika. Dr. Beverly Patterson is an epidemiologist and a co-joint senior lecturer with the University of Newcastle. There is a definite causal link between Zika and microcephaly. What we don't understand is how much of a risk it is, and we don't understand yet at what point during the pregnancy the risk is greatest. A lot of people who get Zika don't have symptoms. You know, then if they do have a spontaneous abortion, a miscarriage, or if there's a problem with their child, you know, then it can be hard to kind of link that to Zika. Or you could get Zika virus and have a perfectly healthy baby. You know, there's a lot that we don't yet know. We don't really understand what the risk is, which makes it difficult to give advice. Pregnant women in that area must be so worried at the moment. I can't imagine how stressed out they must be. You know, to find out that you're that your unborn child is going to have, you know, a major lifelong deformity would be extraordinary for anybody and a terrifying thing to face. But there are just so many unknowns and I think that makes it even worse. Many already have children and uh, having uh, a child with microcephaly would mean quitting their jobs because uh, the state doesn't provide care. And uh, it's a condition that re- requires constant, constant medical care and taking the kid across various uh, health professionals. So, it, and it has happened to women. Many had to quit their jobs, so they were very scared of uh, uh, not being able to provide food and education to their other kids. Many, the first thing that happened, many got abandoned by their husbands or partners as soon as they found out the the kid had uh, microcephaly. So they were very, very uh, alone. They had been abandoned. The state has also abandoned them. While the demand for abortions in Brazil may have increased, it's impossible to know if the abortions themselves have increased or how those abortions are taking place because the data just doesn't exist. But Lucicia says women may either be resorting to unsafe abortion methods or they're being forced into motherhood. It's the structural sexism of the society and it's very, uh, you see in the public discourses that sexuality of women and the exercise of sexuality in women has to be punished and through forced pregnancies and they they hope to to achieve that. It's a very sad situation. Lucicia ending that story. She's a Brazilian woman working for Women on Web. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Isabel Bishop is just another student at the University of Technology, Sydney, except that instead of returning to uni in the next week or so, she'll be competing in water polo at the Rio Olympics. I caught up with her a few weeks ago from Hungary, where the team went for the last game before the Olympics and for some team training as well. It's a really good vibe. There's only, I think, we only have one more official game until 
the Olympics, so that's kind of exciting. We'll go to Montenegro on Sunday, and then that's like our last week before we head off to Rio. So it's all kind of getting to the crunchy crunchy time, I guess, and everyone's really trying to just perfect those little last-minute things. Tell me about training. What are you guys doing to get to the top of your game before Rio? Well, at the moment, there's always, with our sport, there's always a lot of fitness involved. So we're doing fitness and gameplay. This cycle, because of the way the lead-up's gone and there's been quite a few European teams in there, we've been able to play matches against the other countries. So that's been really good. It's always interesting because people are trying not to show their hands too much on what they're going to offer, but at the same token you don't want to show any weakness. So you need to bring the best of what you've got. Something that I think is really interesting about water polo is this idea that there's a lot happening below the surface that people can't see. Is that something that is running through your mind as well? Uh, no. I mean, that that to me has always just been a part of the game. Like, it's not anything that worries me. It's just what happens, happens. And what happens in the water stays in the water. It's not really too big an issue but it is always good at the olympics because they have underwater cameras i guess the public can see what's actually going on all right because that must tell a different story yeah but there's definitely no underwater refereeing or anything so what you can't see goes i guess tell me a bit about your journey with water polo when did you decide that this was a sport you wanted to pursue when i was at 16 i was rowing and playing water polo in adelaide which is where i'm from and I had to make a decision on which one I wanted to do and I was rowing with school. So, you know, it's only a school sport, but in all schools they take it quite seriously. So I was training, I don't know, five times a week for that and I was training five, six times a week for water polo and then I just really decided that I loved water polo so much more because it was so tactical yet you were so – it was like a sisterhood with your team. Like you really develop a bond and you train so hard and put in all the hard work and – while you're always trying to beat your opponent individually, there's always the broader like team aspect of it, which I think is so important. It's, I just, I don't know. I think having water polo outside of school and outside of any other part of my personal life has created such a balance in my life, but also helped me learn so many personal skills and so many social skills that you just, there's no way I would have, had the experiences now that, that if I hadn't have played. So I think I kind of could see that happening from early, from 16 and from to be able to see that I was just like, I need to be involved. I need to keep doing this. That's so interesting. I mean, when you, when I think of Olympic people and Olympic teams, balanced is not the word that I would think to describe because I imagine that you're spending so much time on training and on worrying about your fitness and health that it would be hard to keep that balance. Oh yeah, it is so hard, but I think it's, it's a different road. So when you first start, the having sport really balances out other parts of your life because you're not, you know, when you're younger, it's not the, the a big priority. And obviously now it is my sole priority. So then balancing things outside of that becomes the hard part. So I think for me particularly, I would say like having other things to keep your head in perspective is one of the biggest it's probably one of the most important things to me having that life balance so that I can keep things in perspective and you don't kind of like dwell on the small stuff. I think if with sport, you in professional competitive sport, you can get so involved and do nothing else that it's really hard to not take a step back and realise what your goals are and the process goals to achieve that final outcome goal. 
So you're new to the Olympic team, but the female Olympic water polo team has done so well in the past. There's gold in that history. Is that daunting for you? It's not daunting. It's so exciting. It's such a challenge. I've had one of our Sydney, one of my coaches in Sydney is was an Olympian from the 2000 team. So she's a gold medal. Olympian. And we also had another coach that's a bronze medal winner from 2012. And it's just, it's, it's not daunting. It's a challenge and it's like just the biggest like goal there is like that's what we all aim for and it's just exciting and if to have that history and to have the availability to be able to talk to them and find out their side of it and find out what drove them and what their motivation and tips are I guess for you in like how to perform your best and how to get the best out of the team is actually just a blessing I feel. Tell me about what it takes to be a good water polo player. What do you what do you have that makes you good at this sport that might not apply to another sport or to another field anywhere really? I think water polo is interesting. It's a combination of I guess swimming, wrestling, strength, tactics, all while maintaining like this facade of everything's perfect on top of the water. <laughs> So I think it's, it's it's quite a multi-dimensional sport, which I think is really good and it always keeps you on your toes and it means there's so many different aspects that anyone could bring to the game. And so it means that really anyone can play because you can be any shape, any size. And for me, I'm really lucky that I'm left-handed. So that's a massive advantage in itself because it means I've got a strong goal shooting opportunity from the my side of the pool which right-handers don't have and I'm the only field player that's a left-hander in our team. So when you talk about that tactical mind game you have to play is that what the other team's looking at oh they've got a left-hand player we have to be weary of that or you know what are the what are the questions that you're asking when you're trying to have that tactical edge on your opposition? Yeah you you definitely scope out who team's best players are and what moves they like to play a lot and you try and work out how they react when they're stressed and what their go-to moves are and what what they're best at, really, so that you can break them down. And I'm sure 100% that's what they do to our team. You pick out what our best assets are and you try and exploit the weaknesses and nullify the assets. So I'm, I'm imagining you and the team kind of sitting around a TV and watching hours of footage of, <laughs> of the other teams. Is that what happens? Uh, yeah, to some degree. That's... Yeah, yeah, for sure. For some degree, there's always, first and foremost, most of our time is spent in the pool, but we do do a lot of work outside of the pool as well. Okay, so tell me what you're most excited about for Rio. I mean, obviously you're excited about being in the pool, but was there any sort of fantasies you had or these things you're imagining about what the, being in the Olympics would deliver that you're really excited about? Uh, like a little trivial one is that everyone always talks about food halls. So being a water polo player, that's like one of our most exciting times is meal time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it would be so so great to be with all the best athletes in the world. Like you think about being at the pinnacle of your sport, but you're also around people that are in the pinnacle of their sport too. And there's so many athletes that it's kind of interesting to watch them and be able to be so close and see what what makes them special, you know. I always get goosebumps like talking about it. I've probably got goosebumps right now. It's just so exciting and it's so new to me that while it's a massive achievement and it's a massive thing, it's just the work is not even done, like the work is just starting right now. Isabel Bishop, Australian water polo player, off to the Rio Olympics.
Don't forget, if you want to hear more from us here at Think Health, you can find us online at 2ser.com forward slash Think Health, or you can find us on your favorite podcast app. Just search Think Health and don't forget to subscribe. Remember that I'm not a doctor, so if the show has raised questions for you, head to your GP. The show is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. I'm Nina Copel. See you next week for more Think Health research and news.